Everybody's got a story. I, I just want to make sure that yeah, I, I say here and now that Heather has never asked me to join in the choir. <laughs> we all have something to look forward to. And somebody in the choir said, thank God. I, I'm going to remember that. Everybody's story is different. But we all want to have a sense of a life that is generous or rich or not just... Well, it's what Jesus talks about abundant. It overflows instead of having to hold on to it. It it overflows. He says, I've come that you might have life and have it in all its abundance. That you might thrive. So we have been listening to stories like this all month and talking about what an abundant life, a thriving life might look like. And I, I wanted to add just one more word today. That a life that is filled to overflowing is a life that is filled with hope. Hope. In the Bible, we talk about this all the time. It says, in the end, only three things will remain, faith and hope and love, and the greatest of these is love. And so we're in a church, so we talk about faith all the time, and we gush about love. It's not like we ignore hope, but it comes in third. And so as I prepared for this idea that abundance comes through hope, I discovered that it's way too big to fit hope into one sermon. And I turned to the worship team and I said, I want us to spend all of Lent talking about hope because if there's one thing that people in Minnesota need in the winter, it's hope. (laughs) So we're going to do that. And and one of the resources that I uncovered to do that, I'm just going to encourage to you as a book to buy for Christmas. Okay, a Christmas book to buy. It's called The Hope quotient. We'll have a bunch in Pathway. This is a book that you should get. I'm not saying you should do anything drastic like reading it, but you should get this book so you could give it to other people because they need it, you know? And and you don't even have to read the book because at the beginning, Johnston says, um, he says, let me give you the whole book in one sentence. People thrive for one reason. They have lives of abundance. They thrive for one reason. They commit to things that produce inner strength and hope. People who thrive commit to things that produce inner strength and hope. Now, I don't think that hope is always a felt need. In good times, regular times, we don't go around, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. But... When the kid is sick in Africa or at the hospital, when the marriage is strained, when the profits plummet, when the boss starts to look at you like it might be your fault, when loneliness sets in and you think you're going to be alone, for those days where you're not sure that you're really doing anything that will last, anything you're really proud of, that you're letting yourself and letting other people down, when you're ready to just sit down and stop. That's when you need hope as much as your lungs need oxygen. Hope. 
Sometimes you see something better when it's at the outer limits and it's all that's left than in normal rushed life. And so I, I thought about what hope and despair would look like and, uh, and the outer limits. One of my favorite sources of stories are the explorers, uh, Magellan, Drake, Vasco da Gama, Gagarin, people who go where nobody has gone before and they find something new. They find despair and some of them find hope. 103 years ago, this month, Robert Falcon Scott raced, raced against Rolf Amundsen to the South Pole. Who's going to be the first to get to the South Pole? Scott took off in November of 1911. He went in motorized vehicles and in ponies across the ice cap. The ponies and the vehicles only lasted a couple days and had to be abandoned. Scott's team reaches the South Pole on January 18th, almost two months later, and they are terribly disappointed because they find a Norwegian flag (laughs) sticking up at the pole. It's been there for two weeks. In his journal, Scott writes, Great God, this is an awful place. And it's worse to have struggled to it without the reward of priority. Scott and his crew are frozen, exhausted, disappointed, suffering from scurvy as they turn back. By February 17th, a month later, members of the expedition start to die. And they set up camp on March 11th, 1912, only 11 miles from their food depot where they'll have limitless supplies. But a blizzard comes up and keeps them from leaving the next day or the day after. And that becomes their last camp. And the rest of the crew die right here. They're found dead in their sleeping bags seven months later in November of 1912. What do you think it was like in that tent? Is it filled with hope or despair? Howard Hendricks has this great phrase. He says, discouragement, that is, removing courage. Discouragement is the anesthetic that the devil uses on a person just before, they re- before the devil reaches in and grabs out their heart. You can either be hopeful or discouraged. Despair. In contrast to that, Somebody two years later, 1913, somebody two years later decides that they're going to be the first to walk all the way across the South Pole by themselves. It's an Englishman named Shackleton, Ernest Shackleton. You may have heard of the endurance. He's a great promoter. He puts an ad in the paper. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, Safe return, doubtful. <laughs> Guy knows how to build a crowd. Honor, honor and recognition in case of success, and over 800 men applied for the crew. But it was a disaster. Right from the start, the journey is a disaster. The, the ship is surrounded by ice. That's not unexpected. They actually plan on that happening, but the ice comes and it crushes the hull. 
and it strands them on the pole. So Shackleton leaves his Bible and his watch on the board of the ship, and the crew takes off across the ice cap, pulling a dinghy and supplies for over 100 miles. They stop at what's called Elephant Island, right at the edge of the Ross Sea where the ice cap is, and Shackleton turns to his crew and he says, okay, I can only take five of you in the dinghy. I'll come back for the other 50 of you. I promise I'll come back. And he leaves them stranded at the pole. This story ends a little differently because six months later, after four attempts to get back to his crew, this is the shot. He's coming back. And the hope that kept these men alive brings them to safety. It's either despair or it's hope. What makes the difference? Well, I I think part of it is a choice. You either choose to sit down and die or you choose to hang on and hope. And I think the other part of it is, is what you are putting your hope in trustworthy? What is hope? People thrive for one reason. They commit to things that produce inner strength and hope. I love it that D asked those people in the skyway to define what hope is. The little girl going, how do you use hope without t- using hope? And uh, the other woman said, hope is a feeling. I, I saw that and I went to my dictionary and looked up hope. The theological dictionary of hope. What is hope? When Jeremiah, the prophet, addresses God, he says, our hope is in you. He uses a noun that's formed from the root of the verb ko, ko, to teach that the Lord is the hope of Israel. That means that Israel's God is worthy of trust. Somehow, hope in the Bible means somebody is worthy of trust, and so hope is waiting for what you don't have, and trusting the person who promises it. Hope is not an emotion. Thank God. Because you and I go up and down like this with our emotions. Hope is something that can be learned. The last thing that anybody needs is to get a shot of hope. A little shot of hope that lasts through the morning and you crash again in the afternoon. Hope makes a difference. You think that hope doesn't make a difference? Just think of this. Somebody's going to walk through the door, and it's going to be two people, and one is the most cheerful, optimistic, life-giving, hopeful person that you know, and the other person is the most negative, doleful, glasses-half-empty-and-broken person, and they're both coming toward you. Which one do you hope stops? One gives hope. And one sucks life. Hope grows in people's lives over time. And I think it grows in unexpected places. The saddest book of the Bible, hands down, Job, right? Job is a disaster waiting for things to get worse. But Job reeks with hope. Job chapter 5, so the poor have hope. And injustice shuts its mouth. Job 6, oh, that God would grant what I hope for. Job 11, you'll be secure because there's hope. 
Job 17, where is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? And at the end of the book, God speaks to Job. But before that, he lived in hope. Hopeful people like Job live in a broken world, in a battlefield. People who follow Jesus should not be surprised when somebody gets cancer, when the marriage goes bad, when the job fails, when the retirement is off. This is a battlefield. Job teaches that hopeful people have friends. We are not meant to do this alone, but that our friends must be chosen carefully because they can either lift us up or suck us down. Job teaches that you'd better not pretend that everything is okay. The best part of Job is that he whines and screams at God for 30 chapters. People who have hope are honest enough to vent and not pretend. Because people who pretend, who hold it in, who fake it, that leads to despair and bitterness because hope can only grow in honesty. For the hopeful... Sometimes the only choice is how you're going to respond. Sometimes you cannot do anything about it. You can't make something get better. The only thing you can choose is how you will respond. Will you choose to trust or despair today? Job's wife says, choose to respond. She says, curse God and die. Job's friend says, well, it's got to be somebody's fault. Blame it on somebody. Blame yourself, Job. What will his choice be? Job says, Even if my God slays me, I will put my hope in him. He has decided that his response is not to let go. I think that's probably what Job teaches me most. That you won't have hope unless you have a view of a God big enough to hold on to you when everything else fails. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the end, on the last day, he will stand on the earth and even after my skin has been destroyed, yet my flesh will see God. I myself will see him. I and no one else. How my heart longs inside of me. I wait because I don't have it and I trust that my Redeemer lives. That's maybe the last best lesson of Job on hope. That it ain't over till it's over, and it ain't over. It ain't over. For the hopeful, it's not over. I could talk about this all day, but it'd just be talk. I thought what would be better is to close by asking someone who has gone through trial and despair and hope and good times to come up and share with you. So, Joel, would you... Would you mind coming up? Joelle Severson has been a deacon. Her husband Leif has been an elder. She's raised three wonderful kids here in this community of faith. And 13 years ago, her life changed. And it has not changed back. And so I'd like to ask her, give us just a snapshot of how life and faith have changed since you discovered that you had a tumor. 
Well, I was diagnosed with a non-curable recurring brain tumor 13 years ago, just eight months after giving birth to my third child. My two older kids were five and three at that, at that time, and since my diagnosis, I've undergone three surgeries and have been through chemotherapy twice. And unlike our other friend, Doug, because I have partial brain, I need my notes. I would probably say, the next thing I'm about to say is going to sound a little strange, but I truly felt like God had been preparing me my whole life for this news. So when I got the phone call telling me they had found something on my brain, I wasn't completely shocked, but it was more like, oh, okay, kind of knew that was coming. Um, Probably the hardest part for me in this journey has been knowing that this disease has affected my kids and my husband. Selfishly, I am very grateful to be the one in the role of the patient because I think I would do a terribly lousy job of being on the sidelines watching my husband or my kids go through this. And I see a sweet friend of mine sitting over here as the caregiver, and I don't know how she does it. But I, So selfishly, I am very grateful to be the patient. I would tell you that God blessed me with an immense amount of peace from the moment I was diagnosed, and it was a peace that could only come from him. He also blessed us with this amazing community at CPC and all of the people who immediately embraced us, and this community became the hands and feet of Christ to us and has ministered to us so beautifully over the last 13 years, and I truly can't thank you all enough. I would say over the 13 years, my faith has grown immensely, and probably the two words to summarize my faith at this point would be the words trust and thankfulness. Trust because, quite simply, I've come to realize I have no control over this disease, and I have to put my trust in the Lord and just know that he has the best plan for my life, whether I think it or not. And thankfulness because, quite honestly, over the last 13 years, I've had way too many people come into my life with a brain tumor who have since died, and I am still here. And so I oftentimes will say I struggle with survivor guilt, and I just wonder why I'm still here and they're not. But I really know that um, when those thoughts start to creep in, that God does not want me to live in that place. So I try to reframe my guilt into gratitude and just thank him for every day that I have. I think when something like this comes, Doug said, we we hunch in on ourselves. It's it's all about getting through this. And, And yet over the 13 years, it seems to me that your sickness has been used in the lives of other folks that you've met. How has that been happening? Well, I would say because of the health I have and because God has blessed me with pretty much an asymptomatic life despite this disease, um, he placed it on my heart to start an event and to start a foundation to raise awareness and funds for brain tumor research. And so with that, the goal for starting that for me was obviously to do that, but I want it to be a God-honoring event that would celebrate life. And so my hope for everyone that comes to our event, it happens every year in September, and we just celebrated 11 years of raising funds. And so my hope from that evening is that everyone will leave that night with a greater appreciation for the life that they've been given, whether they have cancer or not. Every day is a gift from God, and I want people to realize that. Um, And one of the things that I love about the event is I know that we're bringing people together, telling their stories, and um, my hope also is just that they are making connections and realizing that they are not alone in this journey because there are so many out there. And so that's part of that. Lauren, I was there last year for the 10th anniversary. It's an unusual kind of fundraiser. It's called Humor for the Tumor. Really, these people talk about their brains falling out. They mean it literally. Their brains are falling out. And they, they talk about 
death unflinchingly. And they celebrate the people that they've lost with real tears. But they bring humor and joy and life to give hope. Millions of dollars raised are a great thing, but more than that is this is a place where people can come and believe that God wants to offer them hope. I, I asked uh, Joel, I, I said, let me, let me tell you that from my perspective, the tumor has given you and Leif a different view of life and death than most of us have. As you look down the road, what do you see? I guess I would have to say, as I look back over the last 13 years and as I look down the road ahead, one of the biggest things that God has done in my life is he has given me a completely different perspective and in the way I live, and I now live with an eternal perspective. Um, he has put a huge longing in my heart for heaven, and quite honestly, that is not something I can share with a lot of people because I think they would think I'm quite weird, and it is a little bit wacky in the place that I live, and my family gets a little tired of it. I, I truly I don't talk about it all the time, but I um, think about heaven a lot. I feel like I live with one earth, foot on this earth and one foot in heaven, and quite honestly, it's kind of a weird place to live. I hope that that does not sound morbid by any means. I am in no way ready to leave my family. If I could take them with me, we would be gone in a heartbeat. My greatest longing right now is just for this life on this earth to pass away as we know it and for our lives to begin with Jesus because that is going to be pretty awesome, and I am so psyched for that. And I just want to take them all with me. I would tell you, though, that during probably one of the hardest times of this journey, I got some great advice from Rich Fino, and that advice was to not to go to the place of what if. And thankfully, my husband and I have been able to embrace that, and we live in the reality of what we know today and not what might happen someday down the road, because that none of us really knows. And so I'm grateful for that, and I'm thankful that we can live in that reality because quite honestly, I've come to believe that we, um, I think we really rob ourselves of the true joy and the hope that the Lord wants for us when we worry about the what-ifs. So ultimately, to answer your question, my hope is truly in the cross and in Jesus Christ. Doug is trying to memorize Romans chapter 5. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And it goes on and it says, And our hope does not disappoint us, for God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for these stories of hope, not Pollyanna, not optimism. Not a little song, but hope that gives us faith. Faith, the assurance of what we hope for. Faith that doesn't make us strong in the gutted out sense, but in the let us trust you, let us hang on, let us love one another, let us look to the future so that one foot is here and one foot is in a place where there is no crying or death or weeping or tears, but we see you face to face.
I thank you for all those folks in the skyway trying to figure hope out. I thank you for all those children learning to be thankful for what they have ahead. And I thank you so much for the courage that you have offered to Jerry and her mom, to Doug, to Joel, and to many of us here. Bless us, Lord Jesus, with hope that leads to the cross and beyond. In your great name, amen.